John chapter 5. There's one great witness to the power and the might of Jesus Christ. The divinity of the Son. One great witness and for supporting, holding up signs, if you want to call them that, to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. That's what we're going to see today. One great witness that stands above all other witnesses, needs no help, needs no support, and yet, because He's merciful and He desires that you be saved, He offers four other visible witnesses. Because we're visible people, aren't we? We're visual in our, in our faith even. We believe what we can see and hear and experience. We struggle to understand and believe and trust what we cannot see. Yeah, I, this week, my heart as I studied has been very convicted about the fact that I cross spans of bridges as if they will stand forever with no thought that they might crumble in rush hour traffic. I don't know about you, but as I saw the first reports and pictures from Minnesota, my heart said, Oh God, I deserve that. Thank you for your mercy. You see, every time, every day, every moment, I deserve the, right, the righteous wrath and indignation of God. And yet He has been merciful. And I think how I trust these man-made structures as if they will never fail me. And yet the bridge to eternal life, Jesus Christ, do I trust Him that way? Unswervingly, unquestionably say, Christ you will never fail. Do my, not only say that with my mouth, but does my heart believe that and does my actions display that I believe in Christ more than I believe in man-made structures for my safety and security. And I have to say, I have a mixed report. At times, yes, and at times I fail to really believe and trust and act on my trust and my belief in such a way that the world sees the beauty of Christ. We've been looking at a passage where this is made clear. There's a, there is a clear picture being drawn between the difference between physical faith, what my eyes can see, and spiritual faith, which is that inner, unseen belief in what is more profoundly true than even what my eyes can pick up and understand. These people just saw a man who was paralyzed stand up, pick up his bed and walk after 37 years. And they believed it. They believed it. They had no choice but to believe it. But what they didn't believe was who healed him. They did not believe in Jesus Christ. They did not accept that he was God and is God. So they're not unlike us. We're not unlike them. And Jesus moves from that miracle 
to an explanation of who He is. He says, I'm one with my Father. All that the Father says and does, I say and do. All of the things that you believe and read in the Old Testament have been fulfilled in me. That's His basic teaching here in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. I honor the Father. The Father honors me. What Whoever believes in my words and the one who sent me has eternal life. He does not come in in judgment. He's passed from death to life. And then last week we focused in on that little paragraph with so much power, 25 through 29. And we said there are two resurrections. There are not three. There are not four. Whatever system you come from, I want to tell you the Bible speaks of two resurrections. The first resurrection is spiritual. We talked about that last week. Jesus said, the hour is coming and now has arrived. When they will hear the voice of the Son of God and hearing that voice, they will come forward to life. They will be resurrected to life. If they hear it, they will believe. If they believe, they will be resurrected to life. Guaranteed statements in 25, 26, 27. Then 28 he says, again calling our attention to a resurrection, a second resurrection will occur. Don't marvel at this, that I'm able to raise people from the dead spiritually. Don't marvel at this. It's a fact. Just like that's a fact, there's an hour coming when I will speak. The Son of Man will speak. My voice, literally, it's as if His voice enters the tomb of dead, physically dead people. All of them, by the way. Don't miss that point. What does it say? It doesn't say He divides this resurrection. It is one resurrection. My voice will enter the tomb. All who are in the tomb will hear my voice. All of them. And they will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's a day coming when your works will be on display before the Father. And if you stand in those works as your saving faith, if you take what you have physically done the good things that you have accomplished in your life, and you offer them to God at His judgment seat, you will be burned with your works for all of eternity. Because you will be standing in your own effort. Do you see that? That's what the judgment is over. Over the works. You say, then who will be delivered? Who can be saved? The man who stands in the works of Jesus Christ can be saved. There's a different judgment for those of us standing in Christ, isn't there? If you're standing in your works, you will be consumed with your works because our God is a consuming fire. But if you stand in the works of Jesus Christ, your righteousness, clothed in His works, then whatever you've done in His name is judged. You see the difference? Not two totally different judgment seats. One judgment seat with two results. God says... You stand in your works, you're condemned. They're unworthy. They have no basis. You are not good. You are rejected. Matthew 7 says, Jesus said, speaking of this time, they will come to me and they will say, we did this and we did that and we did this. And he says, depart. I never knew you. You see, the problem is they're standing in their works. I went to church. 
I cast out demons. I taught in your name. Depart, I don't know who you are. There'll be a, in that same judgment time, there'll be those who stand, as Matthew 25 says, in Christ's work, having offered water to the poor in His name, by His grace, not by their effort, by His effort, having clothed the poor, having visited the imprisoned. What you've done to the least of these, you've done it to me, enter into your rest. I accept you, not because of who you are, because of who I am. Our works are being judged at this judgment seat. And it matters infinitely and eternally whether we stand in His work or our work. Whether we will be accepted or rejected. Judgment is coming. It's coming for everyone. The question is, will it be a damning judgment because of your faith and your self-righteousness or an accepting judgment which says, this is approved of. It was done in my name. This is glorious. I accept it as an offering. Given, though feeble as it may be, as Aaron said, it doesn't matter how magnificent our faith is. It may be the smallest of faith, and yet he says it was true faith. I accept it as a worship to me. And then for all of eternity, those things are being cast back at him as worship. Judgment is coming. It came for at least eight people this week. And all they were doing was going home from work. That's all they were doing. They weren't doing anything evil necessarily. But judgment came. And in that moment, they stood before a holy God, either in their pitiful, dirty, filthy goodness, saying, won't you please take it? or standing clothed in their Savior's righteousness and Him saying, Welcome home. Welcome home. Because you have passed, Jesus says, present tense, from death to life. And Paul says, if you take part in this first resurrection, the second death has no power over you. You're free. And you can now stare death in the face and say, Where is your sting? And where is your triumph? I have won the fight through the grace of my great God and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the hope of our judgment. That's the hope we stand before Him with. And it could come for me and you today. Don't take it for granted. Just because you live in a safe country where car bombs aren't going off and hundreds aren't being killed, don't live in ignorance that death stands at the door ready to take Whoever he's commanded to take, God, the, the God stands there waiting to say, "That's the end. No more. I draw back my life, eternity." At that moment, and it could happen today. So many parallels between the events of this week and even that. I, you know, the sovereignty of God only does these things, orders these things. That you preach on something like judgment and then the next day or a couple of days later, a bridge collapses. John Piper said, my family, the Pipers live within a mile of that bridge. Their church is within a mile of that bridge. His nightly devotion that night was Luke 13, 1 through 9. What's taking place in those verses? Jesus has a group come to him and he says, you think you're better than those who the tower fell on in Siloam? 
You're no better than they are. You think it's chance that they died? No, you could have died just like they did. Fiber said that's sovereignty. Only God orders events so that my little girl understands that judgment is here. And if you enter in judgment without Christ, it's damnation. Al Mohler said, when the bridge collapsed, I immediately thought of sinners in the hands of an angry God. Oh, they don't know that they stand perilously over a pit by the mercy, the thin strand of mercy which keeps them suspended. And at any moment, they might step off into that lake and burn. That's how the lost world goes about their business, as if bridges will last forever. And see, these events, these natural events, call my mind as I study the Word of God to a higher plane, which is, where am I in Christ? Am I ready to meet Him today? The hour has come, and it is here. He is calling dead, spiritually dead people to life. And an hour will come when everyone will stand. In judgment. In Him or not in Him. There's all that's left to be answered. And so we had that powerful little paragraph. And then He ends His teaching. With this great confirming witness to His divinity. Again, He brackets around that statement about judgment. The fact that He is one with the Father, and then He talks about judgment, and then He comes down into 30 through 47 where He says, I'm one with the Father, and there are witnesses, there are proofs to that. He offers one great proof. The one great proof is the Father Himself. Look there in the first verse of this paragraph, in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. It speaks of the fact that Jesus has in His flesh lowered Himself to not act in omnipotent power on His own. I can do nothing on my own. He could, He could have in heaven with equality with God in the Godhead, He did act on His own. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit acted revolving around one another. They They were in perfect relationship and harmony, but then He stepped down, subjecting Himself to the Father and saying, I will do only what the Father says to do now. He, in a sense, has all of that power harnessed now under the will of His Father. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. Notice He's pulling this topic of judgment, which we just finished talking about right down here into this paragraph. And my judgment is righteous or just. Same word. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus says... I'm righteous because I'm following the will of my Father. And I'm just and my judgment is correct. But does he contradict himself? Look there at the next verse in 31. What does he say? If I, test, if I alone bear witness or testify about myself, my testimony is not... Some of you probably have a translation that says true. Not, that's not a good rendering of what this verse says. It says it's not deemed true. Not considered as true. If I just testified on my own, you wouldn't consider it true. That's what he's saying. Why? Because the law said on the count of two or three witnesses, a man might be condemned unto death. Or on the count of two or three witnesses, a man might be justified. In other words, in the Jewish law, there was no room for uh, self-testifying. 
In other words, a man could say all he wanted to, I'm righteous, I'm innocent. But if there are witnesses that said otherwise, he was guilty. So Jesus says, look, my judgment is just, it's righteous. All I really have to say is, I am God. End of story. But because I've humbled myself, I'll now enter into your law. You want proof? I'll give you proof. My proof is that my testimony is all you need. Remember in verse 25, the hour has come and now is here when the voice of the Son of God will raise up the dead. All he needed was his own voice. That's all he really needed. But he lowers, he humbles himself to their standard. He didn't have to. He did it out of mercy. He's going to tell us why later. He says, because I desire you to be saved. That's why I'm doing this. It's unnecessary. I don't have to run out here the examples of John the Baptist, miracles, the law or scripture and Moses. I don't have to give you these things, but I desire that you be saved. And so I'm giving you this so that you can never say, well, he never gave us testimony. He never gave us reasons to trust him. How could we just believe a man? He might be insane. Maybe he's confused. Jesus removes all doubt now. These Jews will either believe or be condemned for their unbelief because He says, I've not only testified of myself. That's just. You see that in verse 30? I'm just. I'm righteous when I say that I'm God. You want more proof? Here's more proof. Why did He do it? Because He humbled Himself in mercy towards those who were slow of heart and said, I'm going to give you some other proofs. Believe them. So he removes all doubt. He testifies to himself. The one great witness to his divinity is his father. The one great superior witness that stands above everything else is the witness of his father. He needed two or three witnesses. Well, he had two. The father and the Holy Spirit. He really didn't need anything else. Didn't he have the testimony of his father at this point in his life? Hadn't God the Father already spoken from heaven? And hadn't the Holy Spirit lit on him at his baptism? He had the testimony. He needed nothing else. But he loved them. And he was long-suffering with their slow hearts. So he offers more proof. But he didn't need it. Matthew 3.17 was enough. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Right? That was the voice that came from heaven at his baptism. In Matthew 17, verse 5, at the transfiguration, Peter says, Oh, let's build a temple, one to Moses, one to Elijah, and one to Jesus. And he says, thundering from heaven, No, worship my son only. Don't worship these other two people. My son. That's testimony to the fact that he was divine in his very nature. He didn't need anything else to prove himself to these Jews. And yet, he loves them, and so he takes his time to prove. He not only had the witness at the baptism, he had the whole witness of the Old Testament that he was the Son of God. He had the entire Old Testament. Exodus chapter 3. The call, right, of Moses. There in the burning bush, Moses is commissioned to go back into Egypt. And to deliver these slow and wicked people out of their sin and slavery 
So he goes and he delivers them and they cross the Red Sea and they get to the edge of the promised land and they send their spies and they come back with a bad witness and God sends them through the desert wandering and Moses sins against God by striking the rock when God said, speak to the rock so water might come forth. And then what happens? He begs God in Exodus 33, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And the Bible says that Moses saw the backside of his, of his appearance. The backside of his appearance. He was in the rock there and he caught a glimpse of his glory. And he lived to, to, to testify, to write that for us. We have it as a witness. Now John in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1 says that Moses brought a form of the glory of God to their hearing. Because he wrote, remember, about the law and he wrote about seeing this. I have seen your glory, he said. But Jesus was the full display of God's glory. The Father was testifying in the Old Testament by giving a little glimpse of His glory. Not only did Moses see this figure of God, which by the way, the Bible tells us God has no form and God cannot be seen. So what are they seeing in the Old Testament? As Aaron talked about all of these Manoah, when before Samson was born, what, what, what did they see? Gideon, what, who did he see? Was it God the Father? No, it was God the Son. The Old Testament said that Jehovah, Yahweh, the great Lord of heaven and earth actually appeared to men like Manoah and Gideon and Israel. He appeared to them. Why? Because he was testifying to the fact that he was coming. I'm coming. And he sent all the prophets who did what? Pointed back and said, Israel, God's coming. He's coming to dwell with us. God with us. Emmanuel will be His name, Isaiah said in chapter 9. Beckoning, calling, believe in Him. Trust in Him. Be saved from your wickedness. Trust in the Messiah. And what did Israel do? Killed all the prophets. Have you ever heard the old phrase, don't shoot the messenger? They shot the messengers. They didn't like what they said. They stoned and beheaded them. Because why? Because they kept pointing to one who would come. He's coming. He's coming. And they wanted him now. And then John the Baptist shows up. We're going to get to him in a moment. And he was not like a reed shaken in the wind, but he testified clearly, Behold the Lamb of God. God kept speaking to them. The Father kept witnessing to Jesus. This is Him. Ever since Adam we've waited and now He's here. Accept Him as true. He had a great witness in the Father. God said, I'm proud of my Son. And this is Him. And they shot the messengers. And the reality is, Peter tells us, they shot the message. They not only killed the messengers, they far worse than that. They crucified the very message of the love of God. Don't ever miss it. When they sentenced him to death and they nailed him to that cross and they laughed as and mocked and jeered as he breathed his last. They figuratively and literally spit into the love of God. And you're here today and you don't know him and you don't believe in him though you have all of this witness of the Father and I'm telling you, you are standing face to face with the Almighty in the Scriptures, Jesus Christ, and you're spitting in His face. 
You're slapping at His love. You're mocking His mercy. And you're trusting what only you can see and not what is unseen. And if you think a bridge collapses fast, when the moment comes that you face judgment for your work, it will be much faster than what those individuals experienced in that horrifying event this week in Minneapolis. Far worse. Far worse. In the twinkling of an eye, the Father's witness will be withdrawn from you and you will face judgment. God always revealed Himself to His people. He loved them. He loved them. He didn't have to reveal Himself. He chose to do it. And they mocked Him. And they spit on Him. And they despised Him until they eventually murdered Him because of His love. And you do the same thing when you reject Him. Lost man or woman or child, understand this. In this context, Jesus is saying, I am just, I am righteous, I have told you I am God, I have told you I am the judge, I have told you judgment is coming. You despise the Father's witness and you despise His justice and you will reap the consequence. You'll be judged. It's a great message in John 5 that we shouldn't overlook. God revealed Himself to His people. And yet, should we be surprised that these Israelites here in this passage, these Jews, these Pharisees that Jesus is speaking to, reject them, should we be surprised? No, these are the same people who when they came out of the Egypt, the slavery of Egypt, just in a little while they crossed the Red Sea. And what do they do when Moses is delayed on the mountain? Well, I guess he's not coming back. Make us a God so we can worship it. They were stiff-necked people. Judges chapter 7. When... They entered into the promised land. They obeyed. And they were conquering the land. And then at the end of Judges, what do we see? Or at the beginning of Judges there in Judges 7, what do we see? Joshua dies and the whole generation dies. And they obeyed until those men died. And then what did they do? The Bible says they immediately turned to idolatry, worshiped Baal, rejected God. That's who Jesus came to, these same people. I came to my own and my own did not receive me. That statement was not only true about His incarnation, it was true in the Old Testament every time He came to them. They rejected Him. The whole story of the Old Testament is their rejection of God. And so, here Jesus says, God has been revealing, or the Bible tells us God has been revealing Himself. And what kind of lovely terms does God use for His bride? Well, just to give us a, a, a picture without getting X-rated, in the Old Testament, the word harlotry is used more for Israel than it is for sexual sin. She is a prostitute. And she's proud of her prostitution, Ezekiel 16 and 23 tell us. She takes pride in the fact that she rejects my witness. One great witness, God the Father through the whole Old Testament preaching, proclaiming, revealing Himself to these people. And then Jesus comes, the greatest and fullest of all revelations of God. 
And what do they do? Should we be surprised? They reject Him. They say, we don't want Him. We don't love Him. We don't think He's beautiful enough. We don't think He's marvelous enough. We want a Messiah in our own making. Well, John, in, just listen to this passage and jot it down. 1 John 5, this same writer in verses 9 through 10 makes a very important statement concerning their rejection of the witness of God. Listen to what he says in 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has become born concerning his son. God is the great one witness to the divinity of his son. And John says, if you, re- reject, if you reject God's witness, you're a liar and you're rejected. It's amazing to me. As I think about my own life and how I was a stiff-necked person and am a stiff-necked person. For, for years, some of you have lived this way. You've come here today. You've been in church all your life maybe. Maybe this is your first time in church. I don't know. But you hear a message about the Son of God and you say, Oh yeah, I believe. He's Jesus. He lived a long time ago. I believe that. Rational fact. It's true. I accept it. But in your heart, you're like the Israelites. You're saying, oh, I believe it here, but here, I'm just not sure. I'm not convinced. I need more proof. I know you've given me this great witness, Father, but I need more proof. That's what the Jews are asking Jesus for. More proof. So Jesus in His mercy gives them more proof. The one great witness is the Father. And then there's the supporting witness of John the Baptist. The supporting witness of John the Baptist. The Jews believed John to be a prophet. They believed it. Look in verse 33 in our passage. They sent to him. You sent to John. And he is born witness of the truth or to the truth. They believed that John was a prophet. And how could you not believe he was a prophet? He was a priest born of Zechariah, the high priest. <clears throat> and he, he, being a priest, was perfect to be a prophet because he was not only a priest, he was a Nazarite. He took a vow of, of, of not cutting his hair, of not drinking strong drink, of not having feasts. I was thinking as I looked at this verse, you know, Would we not recognize a prophet if we saw him? I mean, these guys are weird. They dress with weird clothes, they live in weird places, and they eat weird things. They're just strange people. Unlike anybody in their day. John was not a normal dude, okay? He was rugged. He didn't have pearly white fingers and work on a computer all day. He was tough. He didn't sag at the waistline Because all he ate was just enough to stay alive. Because his food was the word of his father. You ever wonder why he ate locusts and honey? Because he needed the protein to stay alive. 
but he did not want to enjoy what he ate. And the locust dipped in honey had this semblance of bitter, sweet existence. His existence was bitter and yet covered with the blessing of his heavenly father. He ate just enough to stay alive. I see him as a, you know, a hollow man physically. In the desert, sweating. I ain't going to tell you about a desert. (laughs) He lived in a desert. And yet he showed up with this camel hair clothes, long, I just, you can just picture him, long beard, staff in his hand, eating some locusts. And he had one message. He's coming. The light is coming. I'm not him, but he's coming. I'm going to make straight the way of the Lord. I'm going to bring down the high places, raise up the low places. Everybody will have the opportunity to see Him. When they came to the Jordan, what did they hear? But the message of repentance. Repent and believe. The day of judgment is at hand. He baptized them in that pre-Holy Spirit day because they needed a symbol on the outside that proved that they were repentant. If they would humble themselves and enter the Jordan, He baptized them. The Holy Spirit wasn't there to baptize them. John baptized them with water. And then Jesus comes and He says, in the mid, I get this picture of a mid-sermon interruption. Jesus walks up. And all the people are fascinated. They're looking at John, this hollow, locust-eating weirdo. And when Jesus catches His eye and He catches Jesus' eye, worship happens. See, you kind of get the picture if you just kind of read through that. Well, he just said, well, behold, there's Jesus. Hey, no, you don't get that, do you? I hear the quiver in his voice as he bears witness, a supporting witness to the witness of the Father. As they lock eyes, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm going to decrease and he's going to increase. John, everybody's leaving. Nobody cares about you anymore. And he said, praise God. My ministry is complete. He is here. He is the Lamb of God. Follow Him. I'm going to step back into the tapestry of the wilderness and disappear. I'm not in the spotlight. He is the light. He was a burning witness. The Bible says, look, look, he says, I don't need John. Look, see, I told you, he needed only one witness and that was his father. Look what he said, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. Look, I don't need John to do it. I am God. The father says I am. That's all I need. But you slow hearted Israelites, here's John. You think he's a prophet? Well, he bore witness to the truth and I'm the truth. I don't need his testimony, but I accept it. And look what he does. He honors John here. He was a burning and shining lamp. If you have light there, it's not a good translation. Some people put it there. He is not a lamp. He is not a light. He's a lamp. Lupnos, not phos. Phos is the name for light. Jesus is called the light. John is a lamp. He has no light in himself. He's just a man, but he's set on fire by God. He set on fire to be a lamp. Literally, picture the altar of God, the burning coals, and a torch 
being taken and placed in those coals. That's John the Baptist, a torch that is consumed with one person and one message, Jesus Christ. And he's consumed completely, isn't he? Because he would not stop preaching repentance and he would not stop preaching Jesus and he would not stop standing for the truth. He lost his head. He was a lamp. The sun produces light. The moon reflects light. John is the moon. Jesus is the sun. The fire is light in itself. It's, it's, it has a, it, it, you can't imagine a fire without light, and yet the lamp is the torch placed in that light. He was in Christ, and he was consumed by Christ. The witness of John stood as a burning example. And yet we, in some ways, are placed here with John. Burning lamps. Christian, I talk to lost people. You're not off the hook. Are you a supporting witness to the glory, the deity, and the power of Jesus Christ? Like John was. Is your life consumed by Him? And does the world say, that's a city set on a hill and it can't be hidden? That's the light of the world. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 5? As He left the Beatitudes and heads into the similitudes, He says, you're salt and light. Isn't that what He means here? It's the same word. Matthew five fourteen through 16 Jesus says, you're the lamp of the world. You're a city set on a hill. You can't be hidden. And so here's the problem, Christian. Are you hidden? Be honest with yourself. Do some fruit inspection. Try to ascertain whether you are a lamp like John was. Those who are around you, if they could only describe you with one phrase, would it be, he is a Christian? Or would it be, well, he's a good father, he's a good neighbor, he's a good guy, he's a good businessman, he's successful. Would the one witness of the world be to your witness of Jesus Christ? If not, there's serious heart work to be done with the motivations in your life. What is your life about? John only had one purpose. It wasn't to be a weirdo. It was to extend the name of Jesus to the Israel and to all the world. That was His one purpose and is the same true of us. The witness of the Father, the witness of this supporting John the Baptist, the lamp. And I ask as we close this question, we're going to get to the rest of it next week. I want to end here because it's crucial. I ask you, does the world behold the beauty of the radiance and unbelievable and unmatched presence of Jesus Christ when they look in your face. It happened for Moses. Why hasn't it happened for you? Why hasn't it happened for me? You say, well, I've not been on the mountain. I haven't seen God face to face. I beg to differ. 2 Corinthians 4 says that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
And so if you don't beam with that glory, the only assumption I can make is you've never looked at his face. When Moses stepped down off that mountain, they sent word to him, cover yourself. We can't even stand to look at you. Veil yourself. And the Jews lived with that veil. And many live with that veil today. Afraid to see the glory of God. I am begging you, be that Christian who says, God, take the veil down. I want to see your glory. Because when you see it, you'll be radiant like He is. The radiance of the Godhead was in Christ. Hebrews chapter 1. The radiance of the Godhead was beheld in Christ. And when we see Him face to face, not through a veil, but through the Word, when we see Him, we will be radiant. And if not, I just leave you with this question of yourself. Why am I not shining with that radiance? And why can the world around me not say I'm a light? And why can the people I work with not differentiate between me and their other friends? Why am I not a city on a hill? Why am I not a light burning in this world? What is the disconnect? i leave you with that question because that question completes the circle from last week. Judgment is here. Either you're in Christ or not. If you're in Christ, the Bible says you will glow with His presence. Let's pray. Father, You've given testimony of Yourself. You don't need anything else, and yet You gave us John. And so God, help us do heart work this day. Don't let us be slow and stiff-necked, but let us do the real heart work which says, Have I seen you? Lord, we want to see you. Remove the veil over the eyes of those who are lost so they might see you and live. Remove the plugs that are over the eardrums of the spiritual man and let them hear your voice so they might come forward to life. Oh God, Speak through your word to the hearts of these gathered here that we might glow with the knowledge and the radiance of your glory in Jesus Christ. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. If you have any questions, concerns,